Have we got a show for you? I've no idea what we'll do. Welcome, my friends, to this charming tableau. Have we got a show for you? Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. My name is Strangely. This is the podcast, and if you're listening to it, that makes you one of the friends. I'm uh, hopefully going to be able to record this without too many interruptions. There's this, like, tree service guy who's been in the neighborhood all week, and, like, I don't mind someone, like, doing tree service, but, like, I kid you not, he started his chainsaw up at 7.30 in the morning and then was chainsawing until, like, 8.30 p.m. So we're talking, like, 13 straight hours, off and on. Like, sometimes it'll stop for, like, 45 minutes, you're like, okay, we're done, and then more chainsaw. Uh, and he did the house next door, and then someone across the street was like, oh, you should come do this tree for me, and I'm just like, ah, ah, ah. Anyway, uh, we'll see how much of this I can record. It seems like he has stopped chainsawing for, like, the current moment. So we'll see, we'll see how it goes. Uh, yeah, it's, other than that, it's been a good week. I'm still staying with my friends here in LA, and just finally kind of being able to hear myself think again after graduating from university, it's, uh, it's something special, to be sure. Uh, that, that having been said, uh, I'm still doing academic stuff. I'm going to be presenting at this academic conference in a couple weeks, and that's going to be exciting. I'm actually making slides for it. That was what I spent most of my, uh, work hours doing today, uh, making slides for this, like, presentation I'm going to do and I, I actually, I'm very proud of myself. I used a slide that has that Photoshop where someone put like Tide Pod filling inside a Hot Pocket. Um, anyway, maybe I'll, <laughs> maybe I'll make that the picture for this week's episode. Why not? It's a delightful image. Uh, yeah. Anyway, that's enough about current events. <laughs> Let's start the podcast. Strangely recommends, in 200 words or less, including these 11. <laughs> Who imposed this rule? The Fuck It Diet by Carolyn Dooner. It might sound odd that, fitness nut that I am, I would read a bestseller from the fat acceptance movement, but this is a crucial and important book. With patience and kindness, Dooner presents her thesis that what is actually making people unhealthy is not their size, but the unhealthy relationship people in the developed world increasingly have with food and subsequently dieting. By training our bodies long term to expect restriction, we are pushing ourselves into a famine state and fighting against the natural processes which will care for us. I cannot say that I agree with all of Dooner's science, and she goes a bit far in proclaiming that there is a, quote, big diet conspiracy, but she makes her case well, and if nothing else, provides a fantastic alternative viewpoint on holistic health. Equal parts funny, touching, and enlightening, this is a great starting point for anyone contemplating their body at any size. So uh, that book I was talking about last week, uh, Your Mouth is Lovely, I finished reading it. It's it's really good. I would I would recommend it. Uh, check it out uh, if you're interested in that. Um, Your mouth is lovely. By I have it sitting over here still. Uh, by Nancy Richler. Uh, 
really, really beautiful prose, well written. I, I uh, uh, speaking of things I finished reading this week, I also finished reading volume three of Cerebus. Uh, volume three is called Church and State Number One, so it's like Volume Three, Part One, or something like that. Uh, Cerebus is the longest-running black and white independent comic book in history. It went for three hundred issues, all of which were written and illustrated by Dave Sim. And then uh, somewhere around, I think it was about issue sixty. Sim found a collaborator named Gerhardt who started drawing all the backgrounds, so sort of the environment that the characters are in. But it's it's still an incredibly auteur piece of work. You know, it's, it's this one person making all of it. And then, you know, having some other people assisting, but it's very, very distinctly a, a singular vision. I, I've talked about Cerebus on the podcast before. Um, and it, it's fascinating because you really get a window into Dave Sim's mind and how he thinks, uh, for better or for worse. He's a, Dave Sim is a very controversial person, and some of his uh, ideas are... But, 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 but the thing is, is that you can, you can really see that because of his work. You can even see how his thinking changes over time, sort of how, he, how his portrayals of... Um, of men, women, um, change over time. Like, it's funny to, I, I just realized that, um, I've read like a couple thousand pages of this, this, the Cerebus story. And I don't think I've ever seen a child, uh, like there've been a couple babies, but no, like little children. It's just like, it's just like weird idiosyncratic things like that, which you don't, um, you don't get in sort of works that have more of a collaborative, creative uh, uh, production style. You know, even even the most like quote unquote auteur piece of cinema still has actors. You know, giving giving performances and and CGI animators like arranging things in the background or or uh, directors of photography choosing where the camera sits. You know, like you can control. To a certain extent, all aspects of a, of a, say, a piece of cinema or a, um, you know, a, a play or an opera or something, but not to the extent that a, a single authorial voice can be expressed in something like a novel or a, a comic book. Uh, yeah, it's it's something I'm I'm really interested in seeking out more of because I think sometimes you can produce singular and incredible works by you know, a collaborative process, you know, that push-pull can bring out something better. But oftentimes I think people can hold each other back in that they won't take the really strange risks. I, like, for instance, Cerebus, I'll, I'll tell you one more thing about it, and then I'll, I'll kind of wrap up this, the, the ramble section. I, the, I guess that's what this this segment's going to be called, the, the ramble section. Um, for instance, Cerebus, uh, Church and State, be opens with Cerebus, the, the cartoon aardvark, who's the hero of these comics, getting appointed Pope. So now he's the Pope. And he's a he's a selfish, self-centered asshole. Like, that, that's a very important thing about this character. And so he becomes Pope, and he immediately tells everyone that the apocalypse is coming and God's going to destroy the world in 15 days unless they give him all the gold on Earth. So he just starts collecting all this gold. And it's like... It's just, he's just so shitty. And yet, like, the story is compelling because, like, 
you can see that it's an exploration of sort of religion and and established religion versus more personal theology and yeah i just uh i'm still kind of grappling with how i feel about this this comic book but i i'll I'll tell you more as these ideas develop and i think i'll leave the ramble section there so uh yeah i'll uh, i'll keep you updated Here's the thing I've been mulling. When was the last time you deliberately exposed yourself to an alternative viewpoint? I know it's a popular thing to talk about in our present age of fake news and alternative facts, this division of our realities. We will shake our heads sadly and contemplate those who just don't exist in, quote, real life, while refusing to engage with anything they have to say. And let's be real. It is very easy to dismiss an entire block of opposition based upon the worst possible version of it. Who on earth is going to take transgender people seriously when there are people who claim to be, quote, plant kin taking up valuable bandwidth claiming that their struggle to be allowed to photosynthesize is just as valid as the tribulations of someone seeking gender confirmation surgery? (laughs) Just Google plant kin, like if you, whatever, it doesn't really matter. The, The point I'm making here is that I think more often than not, we understand our opposition through the lens of the worst, or at the very least, most outlandish possible version of itself while viewing ourselves and those around us as wholesome warriors on the side of truth, justice, and freedom. I could tell I grew up with loads of comics because I had a hard time following truth and justice with anything but the American way. (coughs) So why do we do this? I think part of this is simple human nature. We seek an in-group. We need this for survival. It's wired into us at a biological level to keep us safe from all the lions and bears and saber-toothed kangaroos out there. Look them up. They existed. Being able to quickly identify friend from foe is a crucial skill in a world that is bigger and meaner than you. But it is starting to get us into trouble in the year 2021. In a global society, what is our group? This desire for an in-group to belong to is what feeds religion, nationalism, Star Wars fandom, and even Jane Austen book clubs. I often find that my involvement in such activities begins to accrue secondary characteristics that have very little to do with the initial purpose of the group. For instance, let me give an example from my own life and my involvement in one of the most contentious groups mentioned above. I have two friends who, from childhood, I've gone to see every single Star Wars film with. Well, every single Star Wars film since 2005, the same two friends, we sit in the same order in the theater, me in the middle. We always go to a midnight screening, opening night of course, and we always sit two-thirds back and in the center. Over time, aspects of this tradition have taken on elements of ritual, even compulsion. In 2017, for the release of The Rise of Skywalker, one of my friends was not available opening night. After much discussion... We settled on seeing the film 24 hours later than everyone else. You would have thought we were planning the invasion of Normandy, or even more convoluted, a wedding. The amount of communication that passed back and forth, much to the consternation of our respective partners at the time. But it was important to us that we do it right. This was all in service to an undefinable element of our friendship that was Star Wars. All this behavior and ritualistic activity, this flurry of planning around something that does not require any of it, but it was part of our engagement with it, this feeling that it was how we engaged with Star Wars. 
I think that's a perfect microcosm for many of the cultural quirks we see around us. You don't just attend a Jane Austen book club. You always drink Prosecco at those meetings. You don't just support Joe Biden. You also write BLM on your Tinder profile. You don't just watch the Super Bowl with your oldest child. You will also deliver a 10-minute monologue about why you were supporting one team over the other, often with digressions into the personal histories of the coaches and the annual rainfall in the cities they represent. I love you, Dad. We all do this. We accrue traditions and behaviors around the things we identify with, and these in turn contribute to our distaste of our opposition. We have long-standing traditions of camaraderie or intellectual rigor. They eat babies and speak in single syllables. Of course, I'm making gross oversimplifications here, but I think the general point does indeed ring true. Before I go any further, I want to clarify here that I don't condone or agree with many of the ideas I encounter in a given year. I think that's part of being an adult, seeing and encountering things that are wrong and being able to discern the fact and not have it hurt me. Case in point, I will never understand the titanic wussiness of born-again Christians when confronted with soft-spoken and erudite atheists like Stephen Fry. If your God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present, why does he need you to froth at the mouth every time one luscious British man brings up a perfectly reasonable point about a disgusting fly that completes its life cycle by burrowing into the eye of a starving child and making the youngster blind for life? Sorry, that sentence took a turn. Just just think about Stephen Fry and his lovely voice, and we'll get through this. Anyway, the thing I'm driving at here is that if you're right, you have nothing to fear. But what if you're wrong? Essayist Chuck Klosterman addresses this very question in his aptly titled 2016 book, But What If We're Wrong? Thinking about the present as if it were the past. Klosterman opens by demonstrating numerous things from history that we now think of as dumb or vice versa or that we now know to be patently untrue. Notable examples are the fact that in 1910, nobody in the United States would have predicted that boxing would not be America's favorite spectator sport by 2010. And the fact that Herman Melville sold less than 2,000 copies of Moby Dick in his lifetime. I'm almost done reading it, I swear. I've got like 150 pages left. It's great. I will do a long write-up about it. And t anyway, uh, I'm getting sidetracked. There are any number of things in our day and age that we take for granted, that we consider the done thing, that we see as irrefutable, that may indeed be thrown out by the next generation. This is why, even though I am pretty certain I know where I stand on any number of issues, I really try to reach far outside of my sphere of experience and comfortable knowledge. Another example. A couple of years ago, a friend asked if I'd read anything interesting lately. I replied that I'd just finished reading Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos. Seriously, that man's voice, it's like Jordan Peterson's voice is like a cross between Jimmy Stewart and, uh, like, it's like if Jimmy Stewart was going with a Canadian accent, it's like, An Antidote to Chaos. My fellow liberal was appalled, confused, and begged to know why I would engage with such rubbish. Now, I will grant that I find Peterson to be pompous, and though he seeks to write as though he is drawing on a vast body of Western culture and thought, a la the great scribes of the Enlightenment, he doesn't seem to have read anything other than a couple of Joseph Campbell books and Gilgamesh. Yeah, he loves Gilgamesh. He's also seen Star Wars 
which he will reference more than a hyperactive 12-year-old strangely in any of his books. Peterson's rules are, as was pointed out by the delightful YouTuber ContraPoints, just a recycling of the same basic self-actualization responsibility advice that every generation discovers as it comes of age and thinks is the greatest wisdom of the ages. So if he's not that great, why read his book? Well, because there are people out there who do think that he's great, who find his ideas compelling and who are impressed that he has read more books than them. They are impressed by his fancy titles and the way he pronounces things like cultural hegemony and clinical psychology. And Peterson is guiding their thinking. I mean, while I find much of his rhetoric distasteful and large portions of his non-psychology-based academic work dubious, he is compelling when allowed to make his case. In his own words, at length, not right, compelling. Peterson is not a slavering madman. He has some genuine concern about the world he lives in and really does seem to believe that he is helping his fellow humans. But the thing is, I don't think I would have really understood him and his admittedly wrong collection of ideas if I had not read his book. It was through this process of learning to understand him that I was able to refute those ideas, not only in my own mind, but when talking to fans of his. People who took everything he said at face value, especially when he was talking about lobsters. I would not have been able to lead them to question Peterson if my only knowledge of his work was through the tweets and YouTube videos of his critics. Again, I love you, Dad. <laughs> I'm not recommending Peterson, and your mileage with the particular exercise of encountering the ideas of your opponents is going to vary based upon your own wherewithal. I've spent years working on the skill of being able to sit in a room with someone who is dead wrong and not leap across the table and chew their face off like a rabid wolverine. I've not always succeeded. Sorry, Mom. But the times when I have learned to understand, I've often found much more common ground than I ever would have imagined. So here's what I'll leave you with. Stop taking anyone's word for it, including mine. Go out and actually try to understand, really understand, what the Flat Earthers or Shit's Creek fans or men's rights activists... <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I was really trying to be very, like, you know, open and, 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 and you know, like, just really make the tent big. But I can't say that one without laughing a little bit. I need to work on some empathy there. I mean... Some of my best friends are men. Like, they totally say that, like, I'm, like, they, they see me as one of them. Like, I can say bro, even though that's their word. <laughs> All kidding aside, the world could always use a little bit more empathy and understanding. Because you never know. Maybe those plant kin do need a bit more gentle tending in order to blossom. And maybe bringing a bottle of Buckfast to the Jane Austen book club is just what you need. You should totally watch The Fantastic Mr. Fox. This 2009 stop-motion animation film by Wes Anderson, the boy king of unspeakably twee film directors, has lost none of its charm in the decade-plus since its release. If anything, this odd gem of a film has grown in my estimation because of its continued uniqueness. On paper, the whole thing sounds like it just shouldn't work. The story is loosely based on the Roald Dahl book of the same title, 
The characters are voiced by a murderer's row of celebrities, including Meryl Streep, George Clooney, and Bill Murray, and the whole thing is realized via handmade feeling stop-motion animation. This last owes much of its charm to the fact that it is accomplished at 12 frames per second, as opposed to the smoother 24 frames per second in similar productions from, say, Laika. At some point, I do need to write about Kubo. The secret key to the whole thing gelling turns out to be Anderson's hyper-twee aesthetic. If you've ever seen one of his films, you know that the composition of each individual shot is very important, often leading to things that look more like moving paintings. In an era that is increasingly being defined by the unfettered moving camera, made possible by shrinking technology, gyroscopically stabilized steady cams, and limitless CGI playgrounds, to watch a film that just wants to sit still with its characters, having conversations and intricately composed shots, it's kind of delightful. The whole thing feels so decidedly old-fashioned. That old-fashionedness, on display throughout the film, can have its downsides. There are a few moments of outright groaner nods to outdated social mores, and I'm sure some of the 50s-era music choices might ruffle a few feathers. See, The Ballad of Davy Crockett, which I guess nobody really thinks about beyond the refrain of Davy, Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. Um... Yeah, I'm not going to sing any of the other lyrics, but you go look it up. I mean, it it was a banger in my childhood, but I, I don't know that I would recommend it now. And yet, the moments when the film rises a butch... <laughs> and yet, the moments when the film rises above such old-fashionedness are really delightful. There is true depth in the relationship between Clooney's eponymous fox and his long-suffering wife, portrayed to perfection by Streep. She wants him to settle down and be a father, but his wild nature keeps drawing him into one scheme and scrape after another. But the whole thing is more complicated than that because we first get to see their courtship years when she was shown to be a willing and able participant in his cavorting larceny. When I first saw this film as a fresh young adult about a decade ago, I viewed it as an amusing romp about a guy hitting middle a middle-aged crisis whose wife doesn't understand that he's still got a wild animal inside. She's the proverbial ball and chain, to put it in the outmoded patois of the hack comedian, but a recent rewatch has me seeing it in a slightly different way. They're both, in their own way, navigating the sacrifices of parenthood. Although she is arguably making more responsible choices, when the cuss hits the fan, she proves just as able to access a deep well of wildness as he does. They have a couple of deeply moving scenes together as they navigate the tumult of their relationship that play a serious drama, albeit between two stop-motion foxes. But that's kind of the point here. As with all fantastical fiction, we begin to care about the characters, no matter how they are realized. Am I putting too much thought into an exercise in unfettered hipster creativity? Probably. But when the on-screen jug band lurches into a musical rendition of the story so far, I'm totally transported. Do yourself a favor. Bake a pie, put on a tweed jacket, pour some cider into your tin cup, and watch it. This is a, a song that I just finished writing this morning. It's brand new. It'll probably go through some more revisions, but uh, I'm really excited about this one. I, I realized as I was finishing this that I've never written a love song uh, to to a partner. I've, I've always written love songs to my friends, and this is no exception. I, I have a very good friend, and um, 
we've had an up and down friendship over the last decade and and we've we've both uh hurt each other's feelings from time to time and uh we we had a little little kerfuffle recently um and my friend just called me and told me how I'd I'd hurt their feelings and and we talked about it and it was great and it it felt super super nice like it felt good to talk about how I'd screwed up um and and so I was like, man, this was like one of the 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 best. Like, I, this is almost the most loved I've felt in years. So, I, anyway, I wrote this song about it. I hope you folks enjoy it. This doesn't have a title yet, um, but I've been referring to it as "Old Friend." So, this is "Old Friend." Addressing what's at hand Used to be scary when we were young Trying to understand When my phone rang and I saw your name I felt like I could cry On the very first moment I heard your voice My heart beat loud inside How are you, old friend? We've not spoken in a while And then you share how I've hurt your feelings And for a moment I lose my smile We're having real conversation Dressing what's at hand Used to be scary when we were young Trying to understand Addressing what's at hand Not so scary now We're not so young And we can understand Addressing what's at hand It's not so scary now We're not so young And we can understand We're having real conversation Addressing what's at hand It's not so scary now We're not so young And we can understand mailbag. I'm going to be restarting the mailbag. So uh, if you want to send me something in the mail, like, I don't know, candy and treats from Canada or weird taxidermy or tiny little 
terracotta figures of nude Bavarian men. Those are all things I've received in the mail. Uh, you can send that stuff to Strangely, 1000 Harris Avenue, Bellingham, Washington, 98225. Number 11. That's right, I moved to studio number 11. Well, that about does it for this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. Uh, I hope the audio quality is a little bit better this week. Chainsaw, Chainsaw Bill out there notwithstanding. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to, to have the time to be producing this again weekly because it, it gives me sort of this like pipeline to synthesize my ideas. So like I read something and then I can talk about it here with you folks. You know, it's, it's something that in some ways I, I really don't want to join quote unquote the cultural conversation. That's why I don't usually talk about brand new artistic stuff, you know, Cerebus, the the giant book that I just finished reading this week came out in like 1986. I think the particular one I just read is older than I am. Uh, haha, do some math. <laughs> but yeah, I, I really appreciate you folks joining me for this. Um, yeah, so stay tuned. There's a lot more to come. And uh, yeah. Strangely and Friends, the podcast is produced in a secret, undisclosed location by me, Strangely Deuceberg. This podcast is made possible by my incredible supporters on Patreon. Seriously, every time I, I, I say that, I get, like, chills. I've got goose pimples. Special thanks to my executive producer patrons, Kim Truitt and Tina Jones. You can check out patreon.com strangely to find out how you can help me make more of uh, whatever this is. Strangely and Friends, the podcast is a Herringbone Society production. Oh, man, I gotta... I forgot to... Okay, I, 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 I was going to read you an Ogden Nash poem, and I totally forgot to have it ready. So, hang, hang, hang on, hang on. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna pull this up here. Let's see. Let's see here. Ah, here, here we go. <clears throat> the Kipper. For half a century, man and nipper, I've doted on a tasty kipper, but since I am no Jack the Ripper. I wish the Kipper had a zipper. <laughs> I'll see you next week.